we have got to figure out, especially within American Christendom, we've got to figure out how to get out of our own echo chambers and get into relationship with people who are not like us, who do not think like us, who do not believe like us, and so on and so forth. And so ultimately, peacemaking is a relational endeavor. A quick note on the audio quality of my voice here and at various points throughout the episode. I had to do some emergency travel and I'm away from the studio this week. I did bring a little travel microphone that gets the job done, but it doesn't sound quite as good as my regular setup. Thanks for understanding. Now, another caveat that you guys are getting used to about this being a religious episode, but if you're someone who's not religious because of how frustrated you are by American Christianity, especially if you're sensitive to the various evils of Western Christian missionaries over the years, then this actually might be really interesting for you as we talk about American Christians' involvement with Israel, reversing missionary imperialism, and more. Global Immersion Project is a nonprofit group that sends mostly American pastors into areas of the world that are steeped in conflict, Israel-Palestine and the San Diego-Tijuana border. When they get there, they meet with established peacemakers on the ground, Palestinians and Israelis, Mexicans and Southern Californians, who understand the conflicts in which they and their families find themselves, and who have real track records of working for peace and bringing about reconciliation. The American pastors then learn from these local peacemakers and then try and bring back what they have learned to their own congregations in the States. When I found out about this, needless to say, I was quite interested. Because when most of us think about the American church, we don't tend to think peacekeeping force in the world. But what if peace, reconciliation, and the promise of restoration are actually central to the Christian story? And if that's true, how have we missed it? It might sound like this is solely a criticism of the Christian right, just because they're kind of in ascendancy right now politically. But as you'll hear, that's not entirely the case. Jer Swigart, our guest today, is co-founding director of Global Immersion Project. He and his co-founder, John, got the idea for the organization after a lot of time overseas. You guys were formed in these conflict-ridden areas, and you want to talk about using conflict, geo-global, or particular conflicts that do not involve Americans and America, as a way of sort of like moving through that and learning from how peacemakers in these other cultures what they've learned and then learn from them, which that is when we originally, we spoke on the phone, you know, a couple weeks ago about this conversation. And that was something that really stood out to me as being pretty fascinating. So can you just, I, I know that you guys work in, or your, your two areas that you draw upon are Israel, Palestine, and then the San Diego border between the United States and, and Mexico. Some of this will be redundant for our listeners, but can you give us like a, a brief synopsis of those conflicts and, and the people that you are interacting with, their interaction in those conflicts as peacemakers? Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, thanks. I, you know, the first thing I think I would say is that um, from, a, from Global Immersion's perspective, conflict is the best classroom to learn about peace and, and the peacemakers embedded in those conflicts are the best teachers. And so our methodology in terms of how we're training domestically and internationally requires that we displace ourselves into these foreign yet familiar conflicts. And so, you know, the deeper you go into a, a conflict like Israel-Palestine, the more you discover how intimately intertwined into that conflict we actually are. And as American Christians in particular, 
whether knowingly or unknowingly, how invested we are in that particular conflict. And so, but for us, the, you know, the, our primary work is focused on U.S.-based faith leaders. And so we build interracial, multicultural, and ecumenical delegations of faith leaders from around the country. And sometimes they're focused on a particular region, and sometimes they're spread all, all over the country and immerse them into the epicenter of these places of, of brokenness and pain. So you, literally it, you fly them there? or We, liter- we yeah. literally fly them there, yeah. So we okay. do— we do about five weeks of um, of training and education, learning together about the the conflict we're about to step into, as well as framing our everyday peacemaking practices, theology and practices. And then we spend in Israel Palestine. We spend eight days on the ground, and fifty percent of our time is in Israel. Fifty percent of our time is in the Palestinian territories. I would say ninety percent of our time are with some of the world's leading peacemakers, and about ten percent of the time are with people who dwell on ideological extremes and. For us, you know, uh, part of what we're trying to teach everyday peacemakers is how to develop real relationships, viable relationships with people with whom you disagree. And so in the methodology itself, we have to ensure that that we're meeting with people who represent the spectrum of understanding on this given conflict, as well as how do you respond to a conflict, either violently in, in a pacifist way, in a justified way, or, um, or as a peacemaker. Oh, and then, and then we do uh, about 10 months of integrative coaching on the flip side of, of the trip itself to help these faith leaders, you know, coach them and actually build a roadmap for how they embed back in their own neighborhoods with these tools uh, to actually lead within their congregations and organizations and ultimately within their context. Yeah, as it pertains to Israel-Palestine, I, I mean, it's, you know, some would say it's a 2,000 plus, 5,000 plus year old conflict, and some would say it's a 60... 65-year-old conflict, you know, and so it's really, it depends on your approach to that. And then historically speaking, you know, you you bring up, uh, you even bring up the United Nations. And I I think as it pertains to Israel-Palestine, we can see where the United Nations made the best decision that they could have made at that moment. They were fueled by intention, and the intention was to give uh, a piece of land to a traumatized people, people that was almost exterminated. The rhetoric, though, that they were giving a land without a people to a people without a land was obviously egregiously false. And so, so therefore, you have this you have now this conflict that's so intractable and so complicated, and, and you have the international community heavily invested in this, you know, in terms of ongoing UN resolutions and like this, like like the strongest, most vocal lobby in the United States is the Israeli lobby and then Christians United for Israel. So you have like deep investment in ensuring that Israel becomes an ethnically pure nation state. And then you have equal investment on the other side saying, wait, we can't, we can't do that because of the now, you know, over 4 million displaced refugees from Palestine, you know, many of which are twice displaced now because they were in Syria and are now trying to find a place to, to live on the planet. And so what we're doing as, as it pertains to Israel-Palestine is helping people develop a, a more holistic understanding of that conflict itself and understand the theology that undergirds some of the Amer- historical historic American presence in that place. And then help us think, uh, I think, more generatively and, and pro-human in the way that we're considering Israelis and Palestinians and how we can invest in that place for the, for the good of, of both peoples. Can you tell us a little bit about those lobbies, those powerful lobbies? I mean, you know, we've many of us have seen footage of like megachurch political rallies with like American and Israeli flags flying. And, I, you know, I don't know how familiar some of our listeners are with this, but I'm, I'm certainly familiar 
that there's a very big movement in conservative Christianity that sort of identifies Israel, the, the modern state of Israel as some part of revelation and, and kind of God's plan to bring the world to an end. And I, but I, but I'm even kind of fuzzy on all of this. Can you just give us a primer? Like what is this relationship and what is, what are sort of the core claims of that group? That's right. That's, that's really good. I mean, the, ultimately what we see happening in Israel, Palestine and with American Christian engagement there is really fueled by dispensational theology, which is a very new theological framework. I mean, historically yeah. speaking, this is this is 150 g- years old or so. 100, 150 years old. Uh, you know, John Nelson Darby, and then it's perpetuated through the Schofield Notes Bible into most of the seminaries in our country, where Schofield, who was a dispensationalist, which very loosely speaking says that the world is split up into these dispensations or eras, and that God actually functions differently or interacts with creation differently in all of these dispensations. There's this end, you know, and then John Schofield took dispensationalism and basically wrote dispensational answers to all the tough questions of the Bible in the Schofield Notes Bible, and then that becomes the primary resource perpetuated through American seminaries. And and so this is ingrained deeply into the psyche and the DNA of American Christianity, and and very much so it's focused on how it's all going to end. And so our engagement in Israel-Palestine as U.S. American Christians, and specifically as evangelical Christians, is informed by this understanding of a cataclysmic atomic holocaust that's going to happen one day, and after that happens, Jesus will ultimately come back and, and reign. And so, when you push someone, first of all, the very few folk will identify as dispensationalist. They, they don't even necessarily get that term. What they know, though, or what they think they know, is that the current nation-state of Israel is synonymous with the Israelite people uh, of the Hebrew Scriptures, and that this somehow is the fulfillment of of all things. Now, where we get problematic. Well, in before all of this we jump is, to the problem, let me just let me just go back and spackle our previous spat a bit and say, people who have listened to me talk about faith stuff, or anybody who's listened to Reconstruct, knows that I am with you on the critique of dispensational theology, one hundred percent, and I'm actually fascinated by tracing these things back historically. I do the same thing with like modern biblical inerrancy on Reconstruct. Let's note, this is totally different than like the Jewish American Israel lobby. This is like a, they may sometimes work together, but it's a completely different reason for supporting Israel than say Jewish people who, you know, have family living there or something like that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, what, what when we're talking, and, and my expertise is in American Christianity, and so the work that I've done is try is really tried to unpack why is it that we are so heavily invested in that particular place, and when when you push hard enough, here's the answer: the moment that we can make this this little tiny piece of real estate, because there's still this understanding that the contemporary Israeli is the represents the promised people, and this little sliver of real estate represents the promised land. And the moment that this little sliver of real estate is 100% Israeli Jewish, then essentially what can happen is we can bulldoze the Dome of the Rock, we can bulldoze Al-Aqsa Mosque, which are two of the top four most holy sites in all of Islam, and are right now on what the Jews call Temple Mount. We can bulldoze them, erect the third temple, and Jesus will come and sit on his throne. So ultimately, what it is that undergirds our passion is not the well-being necessarily 
of our Israeli Jewish brothers and sisters. What actually fuels our passionate investment in this particular conflict is our desire to accelerate the return of Jesus. You're speaking from the perspective of these American Christians who are— Amer- American, yeah. American Christians. Yeah. And so—and and you see this Third Temple— theology uh, you see you see it in uh, among Israeli Jews you see it uh, among the the signage and the messaging with the majority of of evangelical Christian tours that are over there there's this dream of a one day where this third temple is going to be built and Jesus will will come back and sit in throne there's a, there's the, the main problem with that theology from from our perspective is that it it, it really eliminates the work of the cross. It's not, it's not a cross-centric theology necessarily. It, it's an end times-centric theology. And so, if we think about the work on the cross, it's the work on the cross through which God began to make a new family that, that, that flowed out of a particular bloodline to impact all bloodlines. And the promised land is no longer, therefore, a bloodline. It's this new multicultural, multi-ethnic, if you will, family the promised land is no longer just a piece of real estate. It's all of creation. The third thing is the work of the cross and then the empty tomb indicates that Jesus sits enthroned as king right now. And so Jesus doesn't need a third temple in order to sit enthroned. Jesus is king of cosmos in this particular moment. And so the the problem then in terms of how this fuels conflict forward, when you're in the midst of, say, the Palestinian territories and you're sitting down inside of these Israeli settlements, especially the ideological settlements, the more zealous settlements, you begin to recognize that much of the funding for these settlements are is actually occurring from Christians United for Israel and evangelical church partnerships who are actually funding the, the ongoing displacement of Palestinians from their own homelands. And, and then you have to start ask, to ask questions about how how will uh, an ethnically pure Israel be accomplished in a just way? And to do so unjustly, is that pleasing to God, you know, per se? So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of aware of this Israeli Christian theology stuff, but it, to have not heard about it for a while and then hear it again is like so upsetting. <laughs> Another problem with that theology is that it completely ignores literary genre of the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, apocalyptic writing, which no longer exists, was a very popular form of literature from 500, 600 BC to few hundred AD. And we're not particularly well suited to read that just in our English translation on a Tuesday morning at our kitchen table. Gosh, I'm so depressed right now. Okay. Um, (laughs) Well, can I comment really quick? Because I, I think you're you're absolutely right that, like the parallels between what's happening in Israel between Israelis and Palestinians right now, is breathtakingly similar to Manifest Destiny, the 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 colonizing of this particular plot of land that that you and I are sitting in right now, and I think what we're continuing to do to the Black community in our country and other you know so so when when you're in a place like Israel Palestine, and this is why we talk about going into a familiar a foreign yet familiar conflict. The parallels are breathtaking. So it's an incredible experience to be sitting with black and white faith leaders like I was three weeks ago in the Middle East with Israeli and Palestinian peacemakers who both look at us and say, the occupation here is just simply following your pattern. It's following your lead. 
And all of all of it was undergirded by this unique, like God is for a particular bloodline. God has promised a particular place to a particular bloodline, and we're going to take it at the cost of blood. Now you guys know me, as much as I was tempted to just conversationally wallow in the muck of bad theology, that wasn't what this episode was about, so we had to move on. I wanted to find out more about how their particular process of peacemaking worked. Who's going on these trips? How do they get brought up to speed, so to speak, on these massive conflicts so quickly? So in the, in the five weeks, and, and this is the same thing, everything that I just said, essentially, I mean, we can have a different theological conversation about immigration and how, you know, the, the first act of obedience by Abram was to migrate, which is fascinating when, you know, when you have prominent Christian leaders saying things like immigration is not a biblical issue and so on and so forth. It's actually, it's actually quite central to our to our story. So in the immigration classroom, it's the same thing. We're working through a theology of all of this, and then we're meeting with these dynamic folk. And so both with immigration and with Israel-Palestine— and Immigration, it, you mean the U.S.-Mexico border. That's right. Yeah. Yep, yep, we're focusing, which by it, it used to be a conversation about migration from the south-north. Now, when we're in, in Tijuana in particular, you know, we're having consistent interactions with Haitian asylum seekers, with Syrian refugees, with Central American recently deported men, women, and children. I mean, it's really— it's a fascinating it, it is a it, it is a collision of asylum refugee migration and it's it's literally international which is we can talk about in, in a bit but what we're doing in those first five weeks is literally teaching these leaders how to be students of conflict yes the, the case study is an international probably one of the most complicated conflicts on the planet but it gives us a great opportunity to teach dynamic faith leaders how to be students of conflict is it kind of like but when you are about to bat in baseball you throw the weight on your bat and you swing it so that when you get up there your bat will feel lighter in some ways yeah (laughs) you might as well just hey you know what let's just start with israel palestine and then after (laughs) that everything is going to seem a lot easier (laughs) everything else like that that, mrs stevens (laughs) didn't show up to the potluck and everyone's mad at her that's going to be a piece of cake after you've handled palestine right that's exactly it yeah why not start with the heavy hitting and then, uh, yeah, and in some ways it, it does right-size some of these interpersonal conflicts that we find ourselves in and it empowers us to enter into some of the, the systemic injustice. I and also so- like how, because we, you know, one thing you said earlier too that I really loved is that if we're Christians, we're following Jesus in the most powerful country in the history of the world. I mean, you could, I don't know, pound for pound, you know, Alexander the Great, maybe, or the Roman Empire at its height, but but one of the biggest, you know, certainly in the modern era uh, of modern nation states that actually have, they don't just kill each other and have total dominion, but they sort of share power, certainly the most powerful modern nation state in, in history. I like the idea of then going and being vulnerable somewhere that maybe most of what we've done is make it worse and and like letting those people explain to us how to peacemake sort of this reverse colonialism thing. I think that's really beautiful. But that also then applies to back into the, the churchman's local context where it's common to think, well, I'm the head pastor. I'm in charge here. I run the show. But actually maybe having been humbled at the border, having been humbled in Palestine, 
to then go, well, I, maybe I'm not, it's not about me and I can, anyway, I, I'm sure that's part of your guys' thinking. I like that. Yeah, I, that's right. I mean, the, the, the feedback that we get from our international colleagues consistently is that we are, we are entering into our global village unlike any U.S. Americans they've ever experienced before. Because to your point, most U.S. Americans enter into our global village as consumers, as heroes, as people who have the answers, as people who have the solutions. That's how um, I do. That's how I enter in anyway. I don't know absolutely. about you guys. <laughs> absolutely. You know, and so, and, and that's, and, and I would even argue that much of our mission strategy has been deeply fueled by that kind of white hero power colonializing, you know, and, and so it's, it's a very unique experience for our international colleagues to, to see a group of re- relatively high powered faith leaders, men and women, black and white, come in to a place like Israel-Palestine as learners. Okay, so I do want to talk about that history of imperialism in the church, but to recenter us, so tell us about these leaders that they then encounter. The Americans encounter these people in, let's say, Israel and Palestine. What has qualified them as peacemakers? What have they been doing What's their perspective and vibe? Just tell us about them. So we do these five weeks. We're students of conflict. We're learning about, we're, we're, we're paying attention to, in both cases, what are the five major barriers to a just and lasting peace in a place like Israel-Palestine or a place like, or, or uh, the, the phenomenon of immigration? When we're on the ground then, you know, for us, it's very important, first and foremost, that our time is spent with, with people on both sides of the borders, uh, with men and women. And as I said before, even with people with whom we might disagree with their methodology. And so as it pertains to the peacemakers themselves, we've developed an unbelievable network of men and women who just simply find themselves in the trenches in all sorts of creative ways. Some of them are very much so professional nonviolent practitioners. I'm thinking about a, a Palestinian Christian like uh, Sami Awad, who the Awad family, uh, since the beginning of this conflict, have been some of the most radical nonviolent direct action practitioners um, in the midst of the conflict itself at high cost to their family. So when we're sitting down with a Sami Awad, he's talking very practically about how, if we're going to love our enemy, how do we first understand our enemy? So he's going to be t- training us in, in terms of how do you actually develop viable relationships with your enemy that involve things like moving into their pain, suspending your need to be understood. You know, the story that he'll tell is, you know, he, he realized that he was in these nonviolent direct actions all the time, and, but it wasn't fueled by his love of enemy. And Jesus, as you know, Jesus is the only one that ever really took us beyond neighbor love to enemy love. And so Sammy reasoned, if that, if enemy love is legit, and if if enemy love is the embodiment of uh, the the call of the everyday peacemaker, I've got a long way to go. It needs to start with understanding my enemy. So he went to Auschwitz, so that he, as a Palestinian Christian, could get his head around the trauma and the pain and the devastation that his enemy actually experienced because that's the Auschwitz is what is fueling so much of the, the the trauma and the fear and the pain of the contemporary IDF soldier that he's face to face with on the picket lines every single day. You know, and so we, we meet with someone like that or we meet with Daoud and Amal Nasser, brother and sister, who they are on the a hillside farm that's completely surrounded by Israeli settlements. And, you know, a couple of years ago, 2,500 of their olive and fruit trees were bulldozed by these settlers. 
And how do you respond to that? What, what do you do? How do you love your neighbor if your neighbor actually perceives you as a threat? You know, and so we're talking about all of the unique kinds of actions and the ways in which they continue to humanize the settler, the way they humanize the politician, humanize the soldier. And it's unbelievable. It's breathtaking the work that they that they do. On the flip side of that, you know, we'll meet with with my friend Liel, who is a former IDF soldier, and 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 begin to walk with him through how do you seed a movement among the dominant culture. How do you facilitate conversations with with dominant conservative folk who are so fueled by fear that they can't even see the injustice that's happening as a result of this occupation? He'll talk to us a lot about the use of language and messaging and 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 how how do you use particular words with particular people so that they lean in rather than lean away and and things like that. So all of that is really a part of our training on the ideological extremes. We'll meet with someone like Sheikh Ihab, who is the teaching imam of Al-Aqsa Mosque, and uh, and we'll do a we'll do a two hour conversation with him about Jesus and jihad from the context of the Quran. Which, by the way, when's the last time you had a conversation with a prominent Muslim sheikh about Jesus and jihad, right? And and on the one hand, it's it's an incredibly generative, expansive, beautiful conversation about the the essence of Islam. And, and then on the other hand, he'll say things like, you know, it, when it comes to religious extremism, movements like ISIS and movements like Al-Qaeda, that, that is actually, they have abdicated faithfulness to Islam. But then he'll point to us and say, oh, and by the way, you have the same, the same movements in the Christian tradition. And as a matter of fact, he would say, because you are, you know, approximately 600 years older than us, Christianity might be one of the most violent religions on the face of the planet, historically speaking, you know, and so you, you, you place yourself in a, in a situation where you can hear your own narrative critiqued. And that's an important experience for an everyday peacemaker. The other thing that he'll say that, that I think is fascinating is he'll say, you know, in the Quran, there are two kinds of jihad that are valid. Number one is to declare war against the darkest parts of your soul which is beautiful, like declare a holy war on the darkest parts of me, right? And then the second is you can respond to occupation with violence. And he says that's, that's the same kind of jihad, per se, that the United Nations would actually endorse. So it's just, it's fascinating. But then he'll, on the one hand, he will say we have to think very carefully about vi- religion and violence and how it fuels violence because it can be a high-octane fuel for violence, and we have to figure out how to actually take this group of, of young disenfranchised men and women, especially in the Palestinian space, and figure out how to teach them to channel that fuel in a way that's productive, that's constructive, that's nonviolent, and, and so on and so forth. You know? So you know, we, we just have encounters like that that are just – they critique our perspective. They grow our understanding. They grow our capacity for the work of everyday peacemaking in these four practices that we perpetuate. And then we're constantly taking these encounters and processing them and debriefing them and turning people's attention to the conflicts that they find themselves in in their own spaces. Earlier, Jer and I had briefly mentioned imperialism mixing in with missionary activity, like Spanish conquistadors and, and other examples, Indian Uh, subjugation of the Indians by the British. But for any listeners who don't know some of these horrific stories, just to brighten up your day, I asked Jer to give some bullet points, no pun intended. 
I think one of the darkest moments is actually the moment that Constantine picked up um, or, or continued to hold a, a sword and baptized that as a, a Christian way of functioning in the world. And Greg would say that, you know, the first 300 years of Christian history, we were known as a peacemaking, radically nonviolent group of people. And the power came on the fringe. And in 313 AD, Greg would say that Constantine didn't, he, he questions whether Constantine had a legitimate transformational encounter with the Holy Spirit, or if Constantine, as a, as a wise emperor, saw that there was this growing movement in the underbelly of the Roman Empire that was threatening to actually overthrow, like it was taking over the system from, from beneath, if Constantine didn't just say, you know what, we're going to make this, we're going to throw this into the center of the village. Uh, this is going to become the expression. Christianity is now not fringe. It's now the central experience of the Roman Empire. The problem is the Christian experience is informed by and designed around the cross and not the sword. And so it's, it's impossible for us to hold both cross and sword. You, you, you can only hold one. I don't know if the, I mean, I, I get that argument. I don't know if that argument works in the nuclear era. I don't know if it's possible to just be completely pacifist, nonviolent when you know that people have nukes. Like it's almost like, I mean, I I don't know. And that's, we can't probably solve that today, but it is a little different than swords and pistols. I mean, it's like somebody needs to be ensuring that no one blows up everyone. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it seems like Christians could be a really good candidate for those yeah, people. Yeah, absolutely. And and I I, I mean the, the our innovation for violence is breathtaking, right? I mean, it's it's absolutely breathtaking. And yet, on scale in terms of the population of the planet, when we're talking about things like crusades and like the the amount of bloodshed was equally breathtaking, right? In in the name of Christian faithfulness to destroy people and that 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 was kind of the dominant understood expression like this is how this movement happens is yeah for uh, various periods that became for, the dominant. for various periods yeah. right 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 and, and i think we see you know the, a case study for us is 9-11 in terms of the tragedy that happened in 9-11 very real and uh we as the american christian community had an opportunity in that moment, I think, to put on display a very different kind of, uh, of faithfulness. And uh, of course, there were the, the fringe folk who said, you know what, we have an opportunity here to figure out why people hate us like this. And we have an opportunity to respond, pursuing reconciliation and doing um, some, re- some real good in the world. Yet the enthusiastic support for revenge was the dominant message and therefore the dominant expression uh, of our country, which was seen by my colleagues around the world as not just a, an American response, but as a Christian response. And so I, I don't think we get just how we're perceived as Christians, the activity, the violent activity perpetuated by the United States. Granted, there's a ton of good that has happened. Both the good and the bad are perceived as Christian as much as they're perceived as American. And that's I think that's important for us to understand. And so when we responded with revenge, and some would say in a justifiable way, and some would say in a, in, in a criminal way, 
the the watching world looked in and said, huh, like that that is a Christian way of dealing with pain. And that's just the, the perpetuation of our history from the moment that Constantine baptized the the sword as as a Christian tool. I think that's a dark moment, and I don't think that we've recovered from that. So we got these leaders, okay, and then they go and they spend time in these conflicts and then they come home. And and most of them are pastors or something like that, right? Yeah, most of them are pastors. Yeah. Okay. What do they report back in terms of now you're you're in touch with them for 10 more months, kind of following up as they resume their pastorly duties and interact with their congregants? What, you know, what's sort of the what's sort of the change that takes place? Yeah, yeah. The first thing that we really coach uh, these faith leaders toward is don't don't go back to your congregations or your organizations and lead with the conflict that you just immersed into. To lead with an issue is polarizing. And we see this happen every time a pastor comes back from Israel-Palestine or from the immigration front lines with us, and their report out to their congregation or to their leadership team is Israel-Palestine or immigration, it divides the, the room immediately. When they lead with peacemaking and the, a theology of restoration, that actually causes people to lean in. And so the work that we're doing is not only the theological formation of the, the faith leader, him or herself, but we're also teaching that faith leader how to, how to enter back into the context of their congregation or community with language to take their, their congregation on a theodicy uh, so that they too can become the kinds of people with a bit more expansive theology that can then figure out, okay, now how do we show up? How do we show up in relationship with Jews and Muslims here in our own context? How do we show up alongside our migrant neighbors here in overcrowded apartments in the shadows of our neighborhoods? And so, again, the, the theological work is, is important, but then we're also equipping these faith leaders with practices so that, number one, they can be practitioners themselves, and then, number two, they can train them, train their congregations for the work of everyday peacemaking. That strikes me as really different than what one would normally expect. You know, I've, I've been on my fair share of mission trips. My, my wife has been on even more. And the focus is like, you go and you do this work, and then you come back and you talk about the work that you did. That's the standard process. You do a slideshow, you know, whatever. This is interesting because you're basically saying, all right, we're going to take you into one of the most conflict-ridden areas of the world, and you're going to come back, and you should not talk about that. Because once you bring that up, there are pre-existing opinions that people have that will blind them to whatever you're about to tell them. They're going to interpret it all through their own lens that they've already established. And so we talk about stuff like this a lot, and that's kind of what this show is all about. Why is it – let's just – let's get more granular here. You could say, well, certainly you have fresh knowledge. You now have something to offer. Why not lead with that fresh knowledge? What is your response to that? Yeah, well, first of all, I would say that – um, we're very clear that our learning labs and immersion trips are not about doing anything, that we are the project. We are the ones that are undone and remade, and that mission begins when we get home. So that that's really important in terms of the overall framing of, of the whole experience. I'm not interested in in developing thought leaders and smarter theologians. I'm interested in forming radical practitioners who understand how to show up into the points of pain in their own context with the tools to transform. And because we're working with faith leaders and influencers, I'm interested in ensuring that they have the tools to actually seed that movement within their congregation. So we actually do a fair amount of time, uh, like the, the last day that we're on the ground, either in the borderlands or in Israel-Palestine, 
we probably spend an hour and a half working with our faith leaders, helping them craft an answer to the question, how was your trip? That's how important messaging is here. Um, and absolutely, they're equipped with new knowledge. Um, but more than that, they're equipped with transformation, the stories of their own transformation, what changed in them, and what are they going to do about that? Those are the stories that we want them to share as a, uh, as a peacemaking training organization that's about transformation and impact. What changed in you, and what are you doing about it? And by the way, your congregation will follow you to the extent at which they see you living this stuff in your life. I think the, the days of thought leadership in the pulpit and it being exclusively faith leadership, I think that's the reason that millennials are exiting the church in masses is because they're not seeing in their faith leader a life that's contagious, a life that's worth following. Um, they're hearing really good thoughts and ideas are being trafficked to them. But until they actually see a life lived in their faith leadership, which is why I think we're seeing millennials in particular find the kind of meaning in the protest movements in our country right now, they thought that they were going to find that kind of meaning in the context of their faith communities. But they're finding that meaning in the protest movements because they have a voice and there's a cause and they're getting after it and they're watching things change and so on and so forth. That's what they expect from their faith leaders. That's what they want to see. And so that's what we're, we're, we're invested in, in forming. And so therefore, when these faith leaders come back into their own contexts, tell some stories, talk about transformation. But the most important work for you now, if you've been through our training, is to get to work. Put this stuff to practice and live out loud with it, if nothing else, with your leadership team. Live out loud with the struggle and the pain and the challenge and the, the success and all, live out loud with it so that people can see that you're actually on a journey and then they'll probably join you in that. So obviously, most of us are not going to get a chance to go on this trip with Global Immersion Project, but there are still some principles here for the average person in how we relate and how we choose to speak to other people, especially those we disagree with. And like Jonathan Haidt says, we should find the language of the person with whom we're interacting and speak to them in their own language, not making it a point of pride to use our own language. But I wanted to ask Jer, what specific lessons can an average person glean from what these faith leaders learn on these trips. That's why we've written our book. The book is coming out this September by IVP, um, InterVarsity Press. The title of the book is Mending the Divides, Creative Love in a Conflicted World. And I think it's a moment in time book that actually speaks directly to the objective of your project here with the Depolarized podcast. I mean, it is, as you and I have talked about, Dan, it, it, we have got to figure out, especially within American Christendom, we've got to figure out how to get out of our own echo chambers and get into relationship with people who are not like us, who do not think like us, who do not believe like us, and so on and so forth. And so ultimately, peacemaking is a relational endeavor. Yes, it involves systemic change and yet all of that, yes, but it is relationship, you know. And so ultimately, what Global Immersion is doing is raising people's capacity to be in friendships with, um, with unlikely players. And so in the book, itself, we outline the four practices of everyday peacemaking that I think speak directly to what we're talking about here. Um, our four practices are see, immerse, contend, and restore. And so everyday peacemakers are men and women who learn to see the humanity, dignity, and image of God in all of humanity. We're men and women who learn to see our contribution to the pain of other people, right? Rather than just noticing or giving a glance, we see 
Secondly, we immerse. And this is what what's hardest, I think, especially for dominant culture American Christians. We like to notice, diagnose, and offer premature solutions. Everyday peacemakers, once they've seen, they immerse into the radical center of the pain and we're there for a long time. And so for me, uh, you know, w- when it comes to conservatives or progressives or Muslims or you you name the group, my work is to actually suspend my need to be understood and sit long enough and listen longer than feels comfortable to the perspective and the framework and the fear and the success and the dreams and what is it that fuels this particular person or this particular group of people. Right. Part of the reason that the echo chamber is a reality is because we're, we're so fiercely committed to our own perspective and being right that we talk over the perspective or the, you know, the rightness of the like they're wrong. You know, so we don't just sit in, in a posture of curiosity and listen long. And um, and so everyday peacemakers do that and they do it well and they do it for a long time. You know, we always say that if Jesus came and immersed in our neighborhood for 30 years before he did anything or that we know of, you know, that should give us, uh, maybe it should liberate us to sit a little bit longer. Third, we contend. And everyday peacemakers are not people who come up with solutions in isolated chambers, but our contending, our work for the restoration of relationship actually happens collaboratively. Once we've immersed into another person's life, the contending is actually a collaborative endeavor. Rarely are we doing it for someone. Almost always we're doing it in relationship with that person, right? And when we're doing it in relationship with that person, whether it's an interpersonal break or it's a systemic break or it's an international break, the solutions that are being generated are lasting. They're mutually beneficial. They're good for all of us, you know? Again, in order to contend well, we have to suspend our hero mentality, and, um, and, and then ultimately restore. And, and we would say with humility that restore is not a practice that we do. It's more something that we get to participate in, that as we join God in seeing, immersing, and contending, restoration begins to spring to life uh, in our relationships, um, in our systems, and, and in our planet. So, so we would say that the depolarization of our world right now, and I would just even say within American Christianity, and if we want to talk about the progressive and the conservative, it requires that we see the humanity, dignity, and image of God on the person on the other side. It requires that we immerse into their story. We immerse into their life seeking to understand rather than to be understood. And then we contend with them. We get to a place where we're actually collaborating, whether that collaboration looks like moments like these or it looks like unique forums where people are hearing you being exposed to new perspectives or, or whatever it is. I, I don't know. But we're contending together, right? And I think that's the sign of true relationship is when two people are actually hand in hand collaborating and and bringing something to life that didn't exist before. Yeah. Okay. So my final question that I always ask, but I get to kind of tweak it based on the conversation. What does the left miss about conflict in the Middle East or conflict at the Mexican border or, you know, whatever sort of border issues? What do they either miss about the conflicts themselves, or what do they miss about the way that conservative people understand those conflicts and their place in them that keeps liberals from being peacemakers? Yeah, that's good. I I think um, my experience with with a more progressive crowd is that the temptation is to get hyper-focused on the issue, and they lose sight of the actual people. Uh, They they lose sight of the human contact. And, And part of that is because 
the presenting issue becomes the banner. It becomes the thing that, that we can build momentum around. And so we want to see this social ill solved or, or whatever it is. And in so doing, we lose sight of stories like, like Ingrid, who is a, a Guatemalan whose family has been on the run for three and a half years because they tried to extort her family and they wouldn't give in. And so they murdered her husband. And, and so you meet this woman and her two children who have literally been on the, on the run for their lives for three and a half years. And that begins to tell you a different story about immigration and like what is the push and pull and who are the actual people who are caught in the wake of this crazy political conundrum uh, that is immigration, you know? So I think progressives tend to lose sight of the human beings in, in the midst of it. And I think progressives tend to look at conservatives as heartless and rigid. And while the progressive him or herself has probably lost sight of the human beings caught in it. Their greatest critique of the conservative is you don't care about the human beings caught in it. You know? Yeah. I was going to say the human beings that the progressive could lose sight of are the victims of immigration, but also their opponents on the other side of the immigration issue. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so let's flip that question around now for the conservatives. What do they tend to miss about the conflict? What do they tend to miss about their opponents, the liberals. Yeah, yeah. I, my, my experience with the conservative crowd is that conservatives are, and I think this is true for both, but um, but I think conservatives are really good at, um, at identifying the behavior of an extreme few and calling it the general truth about the whole. And I think we see that with immigrants. We're, we're, as conservatives, we're very quick to to demonize an entire group as dangerous and um, an entire faith group as dangerous based on the activity of a few without actually paying attention to our own story and our own history. And so I, I think that's a, a real um, a real pitfall for conservatives. Secondly, I, I think the it, when it comes to systemic injustice and international conflict, I think conservatives really get caught up in boundaries, borders, legality, uh, and, and so on and so forth. The law of the land seems to be very, very important to um, to conservatives. And I think that actually interrupts our ability to love our neighbor well. I'll, I'll illustrate it this way. Um, one of the encounters that we do in our Immigrants Journey Learning Lab is we have an encounter with Border Patrol and an immigration activist in the shadow of the barrier separation wall between San Diego and Tijuana. Interesting. So again, two very different perspectives about immigration. But what's amazing is to watch how this unlikely collaboration has formed to do things like open a rusted gate between these doors once or twice a year to let family members hug for like two minutes. It's amazing the work that's actually happening there. But um, one of the agents, she just kind of had the aroma of Jesus about her. And as I'd been building a relationship with her for about six months, I pulled her aside and I said this. I said, let's say that you go into your neighborhood, you take off your Border Patrol costume, you put on the costume of your neighborhood, like jeans and a T-shirt, and you know that you have an undocumented migrant who lives next door to you. What do you do as a Border Patrol agent? And she says to me, "Uh, is my undocumented neighbor doing anything illegal? And I said, no. And she said, then I love my neighbor. And that, that was a moment for me. And, and she would identify later as a conservative Christian border patrol agent who embodies or reinforces policy, right? But, but here's someone who, as a follower of Jesus, realizes that her call to neighbor love needs to transcend boundaries, borders, and documentation statuses. There's no condition on, on neighbor love based on our understandings of legality and illegality. And I just think that's interesting that for many that would really, it, it would, wait, that person's here illegally, therefore 
I need to do X, Y, and Z. And she's saying, no, that person's undocumented. That person's not doing anything illegal. I love my neighbor. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can check out Jer and the Global Immersion Project at globalimmerse.org. They have a book coming out this September, Mending the Divides, Creative Love in a Conflicted World. You can find me on Twitter, Dan Koch, K-O-C-H. You can join the Facebook discussion group for Depolarized Podcast. And you can go to depolarizedpodcast.com. And if you'd like to support us financially, you can click Become a Patron. We'll see you next week. Thank you.